From the mountains to the coast, create memories, meet new people, and find your favorite wine, mead, or cider in NC. Download the NC Wine app or visit ncwine.org to plan your trip to North Carolina wine country today. Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Matt. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Cork Talk. In this episode, we sit down with Jan Olson from Ferncrest Winery in Andrews, North Carolina. At Ferncrest Winery, they're trying to be good stewards of the environment. Jan tells us about how they focus on the environment in all aspects of their business. Wine Class with the Wine Mouths is back. Join us as Jesse and Jessica take us through the next chapter in the history of wine. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council. You can learn more about the council by going to their website, ncwine.org. So sit back, pour a glass, and listen. All right, so we are here today at Ferncrest Winery in Andrews, North Carolina, with Jan Olson. Jan, welcome to Fork Talk. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. So tell everyone uh, a little bit about Ferncrest, how it got started, and how what's going on in Andrews, North Carolina. Okay. Well, um, how it got started is I uh, had met Kurt, and he was making a lot of wine from pits, and he was also making some really good beer. And we, uh, I was looking at property up here as a retirement area, and we found this property that was perfectly south-facing, which both of us just agreed was very much where we wanted to live because we were both very much into renewable energy homes. Oh, cool. And so we put, this, we put the small vineyard down below on a steep slope on the south-facing and then built the, the house and the winery up above. So that's kind, of, uh, that's kind of how we got the land. How we got started was we started talking about, well, I wanted to come up here as quickly as possible after the land was bought. And he was like, you know, we're really too young to totally retire, so what are we going to do? And I was always loved wine, and we were making lots of wine kits. We were like at 10 to 12 a year that we were making, but we were also aging them. It wasn't like we were like drinking them up. Right. And all the reds were we were aging for like two years before we'd open the bottles. Uh-huh. And the whites, we were you know, within a year we were starting to drink those. And we decided to start talking to people that were in the wine industry, not just go to wineries, but actually talk to them and find out and find out the different business models and find out if they had to start over again, what type of equipment would they start with and what kind of building would they build and just all the little nitty gritty things that you need to know when you're and you're going to build from scratch. So that was very, very helpful. And one of the times that we were there, we met Amy Hilton. And she uh, was like, oh, you need to join the North Carolina Wine Growers Association. So, of course, we joined the Wine Growers Association and took some classes, went up to Surrey, took some of their seminars. And basically, that's how we got into the wine business. And one of the reasons is because I've always liked wine, but not just that because it's a friendly business. It's, there's no competition. Right. Because if you don't like my wines, that's fine. Go to my neighbor. 
Go to the winery down the street. Go to the wine wineries in Yakima Valley. You will find a wine in North Carolina that you love. So, you know, I try to have something for everybody's taste, but if I miss the mark, that's okay. Yeah, this, that's a story we hear uh, in talking to a lot of folks in the, about the, it's particularly the local wine industry, but I don't think that's unique to North Carolina. I think that's that's kind of the way it happens in other areas too. So when the... so. The vineyard is at your home, right. and then, so what, what varieties did you plant initially there? Well, we planted there uh, the Chardonnay, which is a hybrid out of Cornell University, Vidal Blanc, another hybrid, and then Cynthiana, also known as Norton, which my husband fell in love with that wine when he was out in Missouri. He was stationed out there. So those were what we... we planted then. And then here at the tasting room, we've planted Castile, which is a blending grape that's out of uh, the University of Minnesota. And it's a very early ripening. I mean, it's it'll be ready to pick by the end of next week. Oh, wow. wow. And it's actually a cool thing, too, because as you said that I looked out the window, and I'm like, oh, yeah, there are grapevines out there. Oh, yeah, that's, a, that's an actual vine. It's not just you know, shrubbery or a nice topiary, it's actually productive and works towards you. So That's right. Great. And it's a, it's a very dark, inky grape, and we have been using it uh, to, to color. We did last year, used it to color our Catawba. And we work with about nine different vineyards that are in the local area, from Asheville down to uh, Dahlonega, Georgia. So we buy a lot of our, our grapes. And for listeners who don't know, it may sound strange, we're talking about two different properties. So the vineyard and the winery are not at the tasting room here. So your tasting no. room is situated in downtown Andrews. That's right. And we did that for two reasons. One reason is because we're on a single track dirt road. And although it's not a very long single track dirt road, it is a curvy single track dirt road. And you are somebody's backing up if you meet another car. And we just didn't want to have the liability of, of someone trying to get to the winery and some trying to leave from the winery and meeting on that road. And the other thing is that um, we just love this property. We've got lots of off-street parking and a lot. we get a lot of people who just drive are driving by and see it and say, oh, I think I'll stop. Let's, let's stop and have some wine. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Andrews is a cute little mountain town and so having the tasting room downtown, I think, is a, is a good fit. And then with those grapes right out front. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you really Tells know. everyone what this place is. Exactly. Exactly. So talk to us a little bit about the name Ferncrest. Where did that come from? Well, the name came from the fact that my husband's first job out of college was being a state naturalist. And being the type of person that he is, he can't just go out in the woods and show people things and say, here's a tree, here's a flower, here's a fern. He had to know what they all were specifically. <laughs> I go out, on the other hand, into the woods, and I go, oh, look, here's a fern. He'll go, that's a Christmas fern. I say, oh, that's nice. So then we'll walk a little while later, and I'll say, oh, look, another Christmas fern. No, dear, that's a wood fern. <laughs> so I he's like I he's like a walking him. picture in app, right? The, <laughs> exactly. the app on your phone that you can take a picture of a plant and figure it out. <laughs> and then the other thing is that when we moved into a house in Lilburn, Georgia, it had we had a landscape that was all understory, and he wanted to put in ferns. Well, the first thing he thought of was, well, I'll just grow them from spores. Oh, you know how long it takes to grow spurn, uh, ferns from spores? 
Well, the, the last group that he did, which was an Australian tree fern and Elkhorn ferns, took him two years. Oh my God. <laughs> so you have to have a lot of patience. And that's a good thing because making wine takes a lot of patience. <laughs> yes, true. And then the house and the winery are out on, the, on a crest of the hill. It's actually a saddle. And so we just put the fern and the crest together and we got fern crest. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, it's a very interesting logo. It's definitely a, looks like a crest, and you've got the picture of the fern on it, so it, it all works together. And right. And, really, then the, and then the mountains on the top. Right, and the mountains are the Snowbird Mountains. You know, the, the first time uh, we had this drawn for us, they had these real huge peaks, and I'm like, no, no, no. We're yeah, in we're in Western peak. North Carolina. <laughs> they're, they're tall, but they're not the they're Rockies. Not, they're not the Rockies, right. So that's how the logo came about. Pretty cool. Yeah, we had, we had fun doing that. And I think the ferns also go into a lot of the names of the wines that you have. And we're going to talk all about of the na- all of the names are for ferns, awesome. and I get to pick out the fern names. <laughs> it's, is it easier for you to tell which wine is which wine versus which fern which is which fern now? Yes, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I can associate the fern names with the wine. I still can't associate the ferns with the names of their ferns. There's only two that I can identify at sight. One is a cinnamon fern. Because in the, it's huge, mm. it likes wet areas, and it has this big stick that looks like a cinnamon stick in the right. middle. Huh. So that's why it's called the cinnamon fern. And then the other one is the southern maidenhair, which just kind of looks like a hand that's been drooped down. Mm. It's usually on the side of the road. Huh. Wow. Well, okay. I'm looking for those on the way out today. Yeah, for yeah. sure. We for sure. Here. So talk about uh, kind of what people could expect when they come to visit. Well, what people can expect when they come to visit is uh, we do we still do tastings. There's a lot of places that I know of that have gone away with tastings. Mm-hmm. Yep. We also do flights for those people that just want to do a flight. We carry a lot of local products. So we have cheeses that are from uh, Ash County. We have sausages that are from a company that's outside of Charlotte. We have some uh, fermented vegetables that mm-hmm. are from a lady who's in Asheville. We have nuts that are from North Carolina that are done here. We have gr- uh, jams and jellies that are done by ladies that are here in Andrews, as well as a lady who's done over in Murphy. So we're trying to support local businesses in addition to having our wines. And the other thing is that um, this is a really nice space. We have lots of plants, and and everybody's always amazed at how well the plants do in this building, but it has just the right light for them. Right. They just love it here. And I see all the Christmas cactuses. And all the Christmas cactuses. But we also things. have ferns here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Various types of ferns. Yeah. And, and other things. Some of these um, plants I tried growing at the house, and they just didn't get the right amount of sun, and I brought them here, and they all prospered, so. Yeah, you've got a, a lot of good sunlight coming in, and, and so, yeah, and it adds to the ambiance of, of the tasting room, for sure. Right, and then we have a large outdoor area that we just put up solar panels there. We have solar panels and solar, solar voltaic, as well as solar hot water at the house, for, and we use that for the winery as well as the house. Oh, cool. And we've just put uh, solar panels and a stage outside here, and uh, we're very pleased with the way the solar is performing. Good. That's good. And I think there's some other events that maybe 
take place in town that you, oh, can, yeah. you can play off of as well? Mm -hmm. We have uh, twice a month during the late spring through September, we have Food Truck Fridays. And then we do a spring fling in April. We do uh, Oktoberfest this year, it's gonna be September 30th. And then we do a Christmas on Main, which is the weekend before Thanksgiving. So we um, have a lot of things that are going on in Andrews that bring people from all over uh, the Southeast especially. Lots of things to do here. And, and now we have a new attraction, which I will call an attraction. It's called Rail, Rail Tours. And they are uh, four-seater bikes. Now you can, they can be operated with two people or three people or four, so it doesn't have to have four people. And those uh, are motor-assisted, and you go about five miles up to a hand-dug tunnel that was done in, 1850, in 1890s. Oh, wow. And uh, spend a little time up there and then come back. And we're working on... Uh, Andrews, the Andrews Chamber of Commerce is, uh, there's an Andrews Trails group who are looking to add some trails from there to go up to Roto Falls, put a path there right now. Right now it's very, it's difficult to get up there. Mm. And that's right by the, the tunnel. Sounds so cool. It is cool. <laughs> yeah, lots of nature around as well. So Exactly. Hiking, hiking. Biking. Biking. Yep. Yeah. And you're not that far from the Nantahala Gorge either, right? No. Well, we're really situated in between the Nantahala and the Ocoee Gorge. So if you like whitewater rafting. Perfect spot to come. Perfect spot to come. Exactly. Exactly. For the beginners, Nantahala. For the advanced, the Ocoee. <laughs> so your mix, so people that come in, is it, a, is it mostly local folks or you get a, a lot of tourists that are in the area too? Or is it kind of both? It's kind of both. We get a lot of uh, locals who come in. I have a lot of locals who come in routinely, but I have people who come back to this area to go vacationing. They either have a home here or they have a friend who has a home here or a parent that has a home here, and they come back every year or several times a year, and they always come in. I have people who are from here but have left, but they have family reunions and they all come. They come back year after year. We have a number of wedding venues here uh, that are just beautiful. They're destination wedding places, and they come here and have wine. Or sometimes I go up there and do a wine tasting for them. Oh, cool. After they've bought the wine, I, I go up and, and introduce the wines to them. Nice. Kind of like the full service. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Sounds like you probably meet a lot of interesting people and, and I do. hear a lot of interesting stories and share something, too. Mm -hmm. So, very cool. Yeah. So we're actually at a good spot to take a quick little break for our wine education segment. But when we come back, let's spend a little bit of time about talking about the grapes that you grow, the vineyards, and then moving into the wines themselves. Okay. It's time again for Wine Class with the Wine Mounds. Jesse and Jessica, welcome back. Thanks. So we're somewhere in like the mid 1900s or something. Yeah, and With we're just going to stay there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Sounds good. Because I feel like it's still the 1900s. We were born in the 1900s. Yes, we were. Yeah. <laughs> but the late 1900s. Yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah. Yes. Some for of us later than others. But, yeah. <laughs> or at least past World War II now. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So we're in the 50s and 60s tonight. All right. 
So moving into the 1950s, let's first begin our journey in Australia. Hmm. And it's at this point that I wish that I could do an Australian accent, but I'm not even going to try. You guys deserve better than that. So, uh, But we're first going to focus on a man named Max Schubert. Not James Bugsby or Bugsby or whatever? No. Uh, he finally died, maybe? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, he moved to New Zealand, and then who knows? Yeah. Um, but Max Schubert, in 1950, he was traveling around the world, and while he was in a sherry cellar in Spain, he dreamed of a great red wine. Oh. Yeah, as one okay. might do, inspiration struck. Um, but it was here in this sherry cellar. Say that ten times fast. <laughs> and he was smelling American oak. And had never quite had that smell of new American oak and wine together. Huh. Right? It's okay. like, that's not yeah. going to happen everywhere. Yeah. Um, but he then traveled to Bordeaux and relished in Cab Sauv and Merlot. Hmm. So he's got all those swirling around in his head. And with that in his brain, he goes back to Australia to his employer, Pinfold. Oh. With his dream of making a great Australian red. So he was not sleeping in the sherry cellar. <laughs> I don't know. He might have gotten kicked out. The details are a little murky. You can't sleep here, sir. <laughs> uh, but so he's back in Australia with Pinfold. And the problem is that Australia did not have any small new oak barrels. Very little Cabernet and no Merlot. So he had to do it the Australian way. And he would use the best Shiraz he could find. And so there happened to be two old vineyards and cooler sites near Adelaide that would so he had to bag and borrow new barrels and managed to find five fairly small American oak barrels. Lucky guy, <laughs> but only five. <laughs> <laughs> um, so here we have Max. He's got this vision based on a Bordeaux that he was going to have to execute in a uniquely Australian way. And he would call it Grange Hermitage. Mm. So Grange was the name of the original Dr. Pinfold's house. And Hermitage was the most famous Shiraz vineyard in France. So the first Grange was made in 1951, but it wasn't until 1960 that the wine began to throw off and get rid of its dark tannins and exhibit its true flavors like cedar, blackcurrant, tar, you know, so it was truly an original. Smoke, leather, licorice, it had all the things. Um, but since it tasted so tough um, and impenetrable when it was young, it almost didn't happen. And in 1957, Pinfolds ordered Max to stop making it. <laughs> just, just quit. Um, but Max actually kept on making it, hiding it in the dark corners of the cellar where management never went. So doing this in secret. And uh, in 1960, he could finally show off the 1951 that he had oh, made. Wow. And this ushered in the modern wine age for Australia. Mm. So his secret long-term... Project. Yeah, a lot of guts. And he did not take no for an answer. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it all started in the sherry cellar. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So now we're going to um, move on. We're going to get a little bit of a court case going here. Um, so the court case is Jay Bollinger versus Costa Brava Wine Company. So to set the stage, we have a guy named Michael Grills, and he was a student. He was coming home after spending a summer holiday on the Costa Brava in Spain, um, and he thought up a brilliant plan. He had tasted wonderful sparkling wine called Paralada while he was on vacation in Spain. 
And so, I mean, like all college students, right? Came home from study abroad, <laughs> drank a lot of wine, had this great business plan. Yeah, and some culture. So in 1958, he founded the Costa Brava Wine Company. And his idea was to import this Paralada, which was a fizzy Spanish wine. Um, but he was going to call it Spanish Champagne. Mm-hmm. Um, but this wasn't a new idea. He had, he had precedence for this. So Britain had been importing a bunch of Spanish wine. And they had been calling it Spanish Burgundy, Spanish Graves, Spanish Sauternes. For generations. So this wasn't anything new that he was planning. Um, It was just new that he was using champagne. Um, But a significant number of important British wine merchants did a lot of their business with these Spanish knockoffs. So um, not a crazy idea, but this was his plan. Um, And so there was problems with this, right? Um, The English journey... Sorry, the English jury found the Costa Brava Wine Company not guilty. No one thought he was doing anything wrong from the British perspective because <laughs> they were all doing it. Yeah, and had for like centuries. Yes, yeah. but not so much the French. Um, and so they had made good progress in enforcing their laws about the appellation of origin. And so then, to them, it really mattered not only in France but worldwide. Um, and so this is the first time someone in Britain had had degraded the term champagne by applying it to wines of a completely different geographical province. Um, so they wanted to stop this, right? They wanted to stop it before it got out of hand. This is the first one. They're going to like nip in the bun and be done. Um, champagne re- relied very heavily on exports for its profits. And so... They figured to get this to stop, they had to set a legal precedence um, so that they could fight producers in other countries and everywhere else trying to use the term champagne for their domestic product. Um, So in 1960, the champagne exporters, led by Bollinger, um, brought a new action to try and establish that they collectively and exclusively owned the right to the name champagne. A pamphlet was issued by the Costa Brava Wine Company um, and quote said giving us champagne party and they were like kind of outlining how to do this and they clearly it was clearly designed to tempt retailers to spell to sell the spanish um paralada as champagne and that pamphlet was the final like exhibit that swayed the judge in the case um and so the judge ordered the costa brava wine company to stop selling their paralada under any name that included the word champagne um and from that moment onward the champagne producers have been most energetic in prosecuting (laughs) anyone outside of champagne um making and selling sparkling wine the u.s still holds out there's still a little like gray area with u.s (laughs) um but none of its good bubblies call themselves champagne Oddly enough, only the cheapest <laughs> products do. Um, but the the Champenois have become relentless in their defense. So um, some other fun things that they've they've gone against. Um, there was a champagne shampoo, which that's a mouthful, <laughs> yeah. in Germany that they brought charges against. <laughs> a champagne deodorant in Austria. Hmm. Um, and even a champagne perfume by Yves Saint Laurent in France 
and they were all taken to court mm-hmm. over this use. Um, they also sued this guy who was making elderflower champagne in England. Um, so they're hmm. they're relentless for the champagne, even yeah. in products that aren't wine, which I found interesting. Yeah. Don't want to confuse things. That's so right. Don't drink that shampoo. The whole brand thing. <laughs> All right, so we've been to Australia, we've been to England and France, and we are going to come to America tonight. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's start with a little trivia, going way back to the beginnings of the American colonies, but who do you think, like what group of people, were the first to try to establish a New York wine industry, way back in the 1640s? The Dutch? Yeah, Yeah, it was the Dutch. Um, then the English tried, and everyone so far is failing. Like, we know now with our modern lens, it was because of phylloxera, um, but New York also had an extra problem, and that it was just it's cold. <laughs> cold. Cool climate. Though. Yeah. So the, the problem of the cold was partially solved by a guy named Philip Wagner. He was a grape grower in Maryland who pioneered hybridizing crossings of European and local vines. And then in 1952, there was a man named Constantine Frank, who took a bus from New York City to Geneva in the heart of New York's what will become main wine region, the Finger Lakes, or maybe, yeah. So the Finger Lakes, well, I haven't been there, but everybody else has. (laughs) (laughs) So don't let me tell you, but uh, it's a group of deep glacial lakes just south of Lake Ontario. So they have relatively warm waters that allow all vineyards to be planted on their shores. And our man, Constantine Frank, determined, he was determined to prove that classic uh, Vitis vinifera varieties of Europe could work in New York State. So, he wasn't just regular Constantine Frank. No, no. He was Dr. Dr. Constantine Frank. Um, And he got on that bus to head to the New York State Agriculture Experiment Station in Geneva because he wanted to try to get a job there working on vine research. Um, so he had a doctorate from Odessa University in the Ukraine, and his thesis was on growing high-quality Vitis vinifera grapes in cold climates. Like, who better for the job, right? Perfect. So he had grown vinifera in Russia, where the temperature went to 40 below. And there's a quote that he, we had to bury the entire vine in the winter, where when we spit, it froze before it hit the ground. But he didn't get the job. They actually put him to work hoeing blueberries instead. Mm. And it might have had something to do with the fact he could hardly speak English, and it was the 1960s. But eventually, word about this crazy Ukrainian guy gets out to Charles Fournier, uh, who was boss of a wine company called Gold Seal. And he had been chief winemaker at Vaucluse um, in France. And he wanted to make Champagne. Um, <laughs> he was eager to plant vinifera grapes here. So uh, Frank persuaded Fournier that in areas where the ground froze, the secret was to find these really hardy roots that you could graft the sensitive vinifera vines to. And so they set off um, across the American Northeast to find something that would fit the bill. And they got lucky in a convent in Quebec. So, in Quebec, they had a winter climate even worse than New York, and the 
Tonka was able to produce wine from Pinot Noir vines one year in three. So that's not super at odds, I guess, in agriculture. <laughs> yeah, and with Pinot Noir either. Yeah. Uh, so they went back to Gold Seal and they grafted these vines onto the Canadian roots because they were hardier, cold roots than wood. And they grafted on Riesling and Chardonnay, but also Gewurztraminer Demeanor and Cat. And in 1957, the temperatures dropped to minus 13 degrees, and a lot of the native vines were even were killed. Even, um, but the Riesling and Chardonnay on the Canadian rootstocks showed less than 10% damage, and that vintage produced a healthy crop of three to four tons an acre. Good job. Um, Frank's biggest triumph, though, came when his 1961 Riesling. Trocken Baron's Trocken Baronos Lace. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the longest word I've ever seen. Trocken Baronos Lace. Trocken Baronos Lace. His sweet wine was served at the White House in 1961. So, good job, Frank. Yeah, and the winery's still there, so go visit. Yeah, we just did a few weeks ago. All right, we're going to stay in America. We're going to head to the other coast. We're going to head over to California. Um, so the first people to make decent quality mass market wines for the table were the Americans. Obviously, let's mass market everything, <laughs> right? Um, and so we're going to focus on Gallo. Um, if anyone has gone to the grocery store and seen the <laughs> <laughs> double bottles of wine. Um, so Gallo had focused on volume domination of the market, pursuit of profit. Um, and that made EJ, ENJ Gallo the biggest winery in the world. Um, they actually lost that title to the Constellation brand in 2004, but oh. right, we're still in the 1900s. Um, they did look at improving vineyards and winemaking, um, but they also focused on marketing, and that's kind of where the, the play is here. They produced a 300-page manual on how to sell wine, so some of their tips and tricks. Um, seven foot across is the widest the human eyes can take in at one go, so make all of your Gallo bottle displays in a store seven foot across. Hmm. That was one of their... That's true. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Have to check that. yeah, we need to fact check. <laughs> um, but these are quotes, so we don't have to fact check those. <laughs> <laughs> Um, put highly advertised bottles at eye level, impulse purchases at waist level, biggest bottles to the right of the smaller bottles. So it'd be interesting to see if that's how it is at, yeah. at the grocery store. Hmm. Um, but Gallo was started by two brothers, Ernest and Julio, in 1933, so just before Prohibition ended, which is interesting to start a wine business during that time. Um, but they did it to sell bulk wine. And within three years, they built a winery with a 1.5 million gallon capacity. And they started bottling their wine in 1938. And by 1950 is when they had the largest winery in America, which lasted until 2004. Wow. Um, it wasn't until the 1960s, though, that kind of change swept across um, the area and and kind of the marketing in America. So up until that point, they had made stuff like Night Train and Thunderbird, if anyone was drinking prior to the 60s. Um, 
<laughs> no, not here, <laughs> no, but not here. maybe somebody, right? Um, but they, in the 60s, they see this new generation growing up who, who wanted to drink table wines with their meals. Um, so Julio Gallo offered growers long-term contracts at fixed prices to plant better grape varieties, which was kind of new yeah. at that time and really good on him, right? He brought in stainless steel tanks. He started making amber green labor guard. That was in quotes. You couldn't see me do that. But um, bottles to guard against oxidation. Conveniently, they also had their own um, bottling factory. Um, so they kind of started the green glass for that. Um, and they started to refine their blending. So um, at this point, we have their like 60s wine. Um is the hardy burgundy they got by with using the um and i think it's still for sale actually i think it's still called hardy burgundy but um so it's just funny because like i know but who hasn't started you know yeah in their 20s drinking the magnum bottles of gallo um and funny story the wine mouse we did a blind tasting test with our friends in our 20s, mm-hmm. um, when we early, did, 20s. early 20s, when we didn't know any better. Um, <laughs> and actually, in the blind tasting, everybody brought wine, and it was a gallo that won the taste test huh. <laughs> from all of our young 20 year old friends. <laughs> and it was not a magnum, it was a regular. <laughs> but I mean, it's convenient, it's accessible, it's on sale frequently. That's true, <laughs> so, that's very true. Yeah, consistent product. Um, well, so kind of just to round out this time period uh, tonight, but this era was marked by a lot of technological advances. So probably, I don't want to say anything sweeping, like more than any other time, but like there's a lot going on worldwide, right? Like, and mm-hmm. there's changes in packaging and stuff is happening in post-war times. But so for wine, though, because that's all we care about, um, during this era, we get the Tetra Brick Carton that was introduced by the Swedes in 1963. So it's usually a rectangular shape and usually a liter in size, and the seal can protect wine because it, you know, everything else, it, there's, it's a preventing air contact. Mm. So we have that back in 1963. Thank you. Also, bag and box. So a guy named Thomas Angro, a winemaker from Rinmark, South Australia was the first guy to invent cask wine packaging. And it was patented April 20th, 1965. Mm. And in 1967, Charles Malpas and Penfold Wines patented a plastic airtight cap welded to a metalized bladder-like bag, right? So there's a lot of words to describe something we all know <laughs> instantly. <laughs> um, and this made storage more convenient. It made pouring easier and storage less likely. Hmm. So it's hard to imagine a boxed wine in a bag without the pour spout. Yeah, Yeah. that's true. Yeah. And also thinking that it did exist back in the 1960s. That's not a new thing. Yeah. We've been slapping the bag since (laughs) (laughs) 1967. But it's, you know, we've often heard that Australians are kind of leading the charge with like closures and different things and, you know, with the. Seldon's. Yeah. yeah. So it's really interesting that even the back back can go back to that. So yeah. Hmm. And that's 
we we do have some food pairings we'd like to talk about tonight. So one of the first ones we talked about was the Grange um, Hermitage. Or here I always think of because that's that's probably a really big wine. So I would I always think of lamb, the little yeah. tiny baby dogs. <laughs> They're back. Maybe not those, but I think lamb or like earthy mushroom kind of dishes like that. Yeah. Or stews. Yeah. Like, you know, cassoulet comes. Too. Yeah. 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 Some tartare. I just envisioned us having a word cloud from our podcast all year and baby Leia would be like. <laughs> <laughs> it would be the top. The biggest word. It would. It would. <laughs> Can I make that happen? <laughs> we actually ate at a restaurant in Geneva. Ooh. New York recently and we had venison tartare. I don't remember what we paired what it was paired. It was not a Shiraz. No, oh. it was it was a Rioja. Okay. It was but gotcha. still American yeah. oak, yep. big red yep. wine. So yep. could work. Yeah. Um yeah. Hmm. So what's our next yeah, little thing? About venison. Um so our next food pairing will be with Kava to celebrate mm. the um Spanish <laughs> Well it's sparkling so it goes yeah. with anything. Yeah. The best Patatas Bravas. Um, and the food pairing I've ever had was at a Champagneria or Cavaria in Barcelona, and they had like three euro bottles of cava mm. paired with these little sandwiches. Mm. Oh yeah. Cool. What kind of sandwiches? I don't even remember. The sandwiches were not important. <laughs> <laughs> but it was Something like a good Spanish ham. Bread. Yeah, it was like crusty bread, ham, and cheese. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe yeah. butter. I'm thinking of like a maybe oh, like a tortilla, like you know, like the egg yeah. dish, not not the yeah. flour thing, but with the potatoes, mm-hmm. with the potatoes yeah. and all that. I think mm-hmm. that would, mm, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. lovely. Can't go wrong. I mean, the potato chips. Yeah. Any, I don't know anything yeah. we talked about. And for the record, cob is better than prosecco, but no, yeah. no offense to the Italians, but. Agreed. All right, so our next one, New York Riesling. Mm. Mm-hmm. Oh well. So we just recently had a lot of New York yeah. Riesling. Um, obviously, for me, sushi is something I love. With some, and also sushi rolls with a little bit of spice to kind of pair there. Um, I would say as we head into fall, um, Riesling is perfect for Thanksgiving. Probably goes well with your turkey and with your um, cranberry with the, with the cranberry relish mm-hmm. and with with sweet potatoes and pumpkin dishes and, and depending on the sweetness level. It could be something that goes with dessert, like mm-hmm. pumpkin pie. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Or if you happen to have a schnitzel handy, yeah, you can. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I always yeah. have a schnitzel handy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, and you know us, we always like to bring up reasoning with Thai food or anything spicy. Yeah. Oh yeah, that spice and acidity goes really well. Yeah. Um, all right, next up is our Gallo Red Blend. Mm. Right. I like to so. pair that with a grocery store. Just leave it there. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Or the kitchen sink, pouring it down the drain. Or, but if you, if you have to, I mean, if you're going to buy yeah. one, then, I mean. Maybe make sangria with it. Yeah, sangria. Add a little bit of extra liquor and yeah. some fruit. Perfect. Frozen also, yeah, I was <laughs> to say, also, I feel like some of the cheaper red generic blends could also be for a meal that's like super busy yeah where you don't want to like yeah. doesn't want to actually take yeah. away like 
if there's just so much going on, you just need something to drink. Yeah. It's like yeah. a lunch meal or something. Yeah. Like a weekend lunch. Or if you're having like your in-laws over that you have. <laughs> <laughs> or like people you know that's just going to yeah. drink all your wine and not appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Like if you're planning Give them that, then you can drink something nice. Like yeah. a new Yeah. Yeah. Put it in a different. <laughs> or have it as like the third bottle of wine yeah. open mm. with it. Put that in the carafe and they can just pull out of that. Yeah. This is our table wine. <laughs> and this one kind of goes hand in hand with that. Yeah. But boxed wine. Yeah. Well, and I think he's well it depends on what your boxed wine is, though. Like, if right. it's Franzia, then it's the same thing that we just talked about. But if right. it's, like, decent boxed wine, then no. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with boxed wine. It's yeah. just what's the quality of the wine that's in the box. Yeah. That's the, and everybody has to start somewhere, and that's yeah. okay. You drink yeah. what you like, and, and, and keeps the wine fresh yeah. longer. Yeah. So you so. can have like a glass of wine and hold yeah. on to it, you know. So our my pairing with a box wine or our pairing would be a print adventure because like you just mm-hmm. sometimes need yeah. wine that is easy on the go. And I will say, fun. recently at the beach, we had like you know our cart with the cooler full of beer and everything and we literally just took the bladder that the bladder out of the box and put it in the cooler. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't get like torn on the ice and no. it's just chilled. So you just pour it in your cup. And yeah, it's genius. Yeah, it's a good thing to do it. No glass at the beach. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh and one last pairing is you with us <laughs> on November 14th, 15th and 16th. Uh, so please take our class. We're going to be teaching a little crash course into how it's made, holiday edition. So we're going to be talking about celebratory wines to help gear up and get ready for Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's Eve. We'll be talking about like celebratory wines and, and how they're how made. made and dabble in the featuring part. But hmm. that's super yeah. interesting. And of course, get to drink wine. Yeah. Tonight. It's going to be like a three nights in a row. Little crash course, so come hang out with us. Yeah, and, and you can find information on our website or our social medias, but the class is through Davidson Davy Community College. All right, sounds like a fun time. We did the summer camp back in August and it was a blast, so yeah, all right, excellent. Well, we definitely covered a lot of ground and stayed in the 1900s, yeah, <laughs> the mid 1900s. <laughs> um, so yeah, this is very exciting. Jesse and Jessica, thank you very much. Thanks. You can find out more information about the Winemouths by going to their website, winemouths.com, or on Facebook and Instagram at Winemouths. That's W-I-N-E-M-O-U-T-H-S. And now back to the show. Alright, so we're back here with Jan. So, Jan, earlier you mentioned, um, you know, of course you have the estate vineyard and you also work with about nine other vineyards in the area. Talk to us about what grape growing is like here in this part of North Carolina in the Upper Hiawassee AVA. The uh, Upper Hiawassee AVA is in a unique position. We have uh, anywhere from vineyards that are at 1,800 feet of elevation to uh, 22, 23 so it's a wide range. What primarily grows here well, from my standpoint, is the vinifera, the um, Native Americans and the hybrids. Uh, vinifera can be difficult because there are some years we have no 90 degree heat days. And 
a lot of grapes need that 90 degrees to actually get ripe enough in order to have the sugars that you want in them to harvest. But this AVA, what I like about it is the fact that it goes across state lines. One of the things that my husband and I did when we were going around, and one of the things I would say to people is, how come there's no AVA out here? And then I would say, but why is it that we are so similar to North Georgia? Why would we not be part of an AVA that went into North Georgia as well as Western North Carolina? It seems strange to me that, you know, an AVA should stop at a border. And I spoke to a lot of uh, vineyard and winery owners at the time, and I really like to think that I planted that seed of the upper Hiawassee Highlands. Um, we were around in, in working with the process. We hadn't opened yet, but we were we had the vineyard and we were in the discussions when they were setting up the AVA. So it was a lot of fun. I can imagine so. I mean, and like you said, an AVA shouldn't stop at state borders because climate, soil, oh, yeah. geography, geology, it all crosses the borders. And I think you see that in this AVA specifically. Right. And that's what's important to us. And that was North Carolina's first AVA that crossed state lines. And then that was later a second AVA that crossed state lines twice with Virginia right. and Tennessee. With the, and I wonder if they would have done it had, had yeah, this exactly. one not gone across state yeah. lines. I Maybe really not. Do. But it, it's a similar similar reasoning there. Their climate with north, uh, kind of north east Tennessee and southwest Virginia is very similar to northwest North Carolina, and so that's right. Made sense. It made perfect sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, back to the vineyards question. So, you work with about nine other vineyards in the area that you mentioned. Um, what are some of the things that you notice coming in from those vineyards that? help supplement what you have as well? Do you notice differences in quality or differences in fruit characteristics? What I notice is that um, they need Kurt to help them. He, uh, he's very good. One of the reasons we have a vineyard is so that he knows how it, what it takes to grow, you know, what kind of spray regime you need, you know, what varieties can take what chemicals at what time, and the whole, that whole area is very important to grape growing. And so he works with the diff some of the different vineyards that we have, that we work with, and helps them understand what pressures they're getting and what they may need to spray. Okay. I'm not saying all of them need that, sure. but there are a few of the smaller growers that, uh, you know, they need that. And then there's one that we do the spraying for them towards the end of the uh, season. They don't want to... They, would prefer Kurt to, to do the final couple spraying so that they're not interfering with when to harvest based on the number <coughs> of uh, days that you have to, because all these chemicals have certain, you know, yeah. certain number of days before you can harvest. But that's, that's the other thing is that I won't say that we go and we pick at every vineyard that we work with, but we, if they need help, we go out and we pick with them so that we're actually field um, sorting and picking out any rot, if there is any, so we know what the quality of those grapes are going to be when they show up at the doorstep, because yeah. we were out there picking them. <laughs> so how, how about how many tons are you dealing with each season there? Obviously, it's going to depend on the weather. Depends on the weather. It depends on the availability of the grapes. 
Um, I would say that last year we got about three and a half tons, and that's unusual, but it was a really good year for getting grapes, and we'll just have to see what we're going to end up with this year. Um, we, we can put up batches that are anywhere from 12 cases to as many as about 90 cases, and we do all the bottling pretty much ourselves and get a little bit of help sometimes. Well, it's always good to have help, and I want to just mention, so I think it's great that you work with the other growers in the area to help them elevate their quality because not only does it help your wine, but it helps everyone else's wine and everyone else that's producing. If we can kind of elevate that to say, well, okay, I'm not going to just harvest at a low bricks. I'm going to wait till it's better. And, and to do that, I'm going to lower my disease pressure. I'm going to treat differently. I'm going to have different viticulture techniques to get there. So I think yeah. it, it's a great thing that you're doing. Yeah, we're trying to promote the, the industry as much as we possibly can and, and be there for anybody who wants to grow the grapes. One of the things that I see, we're lucky, we're up on steep slopes with our grapes, but, uh, and we've been offered property. There's so many people who are like, oh, I've got this farm, come plant your grapes here. We'd love to have them. And I'm like, it's bottom land. Yeah. No. Grapes don't like bottom land. Yeah. They don't like the water to sit on yes. them. They don't so like the, the air to <laughs> the air to sit on them yeah. when it's cold. They want drainage. Yeah. And uh, you know, so site selection is just so very important. And I've actually had people come in here telling me they were going to grow grapes, and um, and the first thing I ask them is, well, where are you where are you going to grow them, and how are you going to grow them? You know, are you are you talking about bottomland, or are you talking about something that's got a little bit of slope? Yeah, what's your sun? What's your sun exposure and all right. of that? Those those are key things to ask as well. So right. So let's talk a little bit about the wines then. So uh, kind of walk us through what wines are typically available when folks come to visit. Well, it depends on you know what we've gotten out of the tanks, of course. But uh, right now we have our Vidal Blanc, which is all that we grow. It's it's all from our estate grown. We've uh, looked to buy some additional Vidal Blanc, and, but not been successful. Uh, we have some Cayuga White that is a grape that is grown in our AVA, even though it's grown over in Georgia. We have a Saval Blanc, which is local um, from two different vineyards, one here in Andrews, uh, one Beaver Dam Vineyards out in Unaka. And we've been making a, a Saval Blanc that we soak in peaches. That's our, mm. our sweet peachy wine. Catawba is grown locally uh, by Joel Frank, so we have that in the tasting room. We get a lot of Cynthiana, which even though it's an inky grape, if you do whole cluster pressing, you can make a rosé out of it. Oh. It's a dark rosé, but it's still a rosé, so we, have, we always have that in the tasting room. Um, our mountain wood, of course, is our Cynthiana. That's probably what I consider to be our flagship red. And then the other one that we'll, you'll always find is our blackberry, pretty much blackberry, blueberry. Um, that the blackberries I go out and handpick, and then the blueberries we try to find a source. This year, the one that we're is in process. We actually found a grower here in North Carolina that we could buy from. Oh, cool! That's awesome. So it's a total North Carolina product. So maybe we'll put that in the state fair next year yeah. or the, the wine competition right. or whatever. Right happens to be. So talk about some of the awards that these wines have won. Okay, well, the first time that we did our Cayuga White, it won double gold. 
Unfortunately, since it wasn't a, a North Carolina product, even though it was in our AVA, you know, we couldn't go for, for best of show. Um, but the Lace White um, is back, and I think it's really good this year. It's a little on the drier side. Our Saval Blanc that we got also got Doble Gold, but that was last year. Um, that was the Saval Blanc that we got from locally. Our Royal White consistently gets gold and silver medals. Our Cynthiana that's in the, um, in the Mountain Wood generally gets silver or bronze medals. So we, we've done rather well. When my husband uh, one time asked me why I named the Royal White, the Vidal Blanc the Royal White, and then it started winning gold medals. And so now I know why you named it that. Another one that, that we generally have, um, we'll be bringing it back into the tasting room pretty soon, is our Southern Lady, which is our, uh, it's our Chardonnay, which we grow and also get from a, a vineyard that's out in Asheville. And that one is a proverbial favorite of everyone because Chardonnay tastes so much like Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. And everybody, it's name recognition, I guess but everybody's looking for that Chardonnay type wine. Right. We use all stainless steel fermentation for our whites and also our aging, and as well as our rosés. So they do present fruit forward because it, they never go through a secondary um, fermentation to take out that fruit. And that's what we like. Yeah, and I think that helps embrace some of the, the freshness, the fruitiness of those, because those varieties can have such a great uh, spectrum of flavors and aromas. Right. Of course, we do use oak for our for our reds. Typically, how long are you aging the reds in oak? It depends on. Well, the it depends problem. a little bit, but um, I'll tell you a good story about that. My husband bought new American oak barrels back in uh, '17, and we put in the Merlot that we had gotten from North Georgia, and we put in the Cynthiana that we got from ourselves, and as well as Beaver Dam. Two years later, he took them out of the barrels. The Cynthiana came out going, man, bring it on. I got it, I'm, I'm, I love it, just bring it on. Merlot came out going, please, 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 no. <laughs> so we ended up going and buying some Cab Franc from North Georgia and blending that in with, and putting that in new American oak, uh, not new, um, sorry, neutral oak for a year. The other one had been in for two years, and then blending them. Okay. And that's what we have for our tassel red. But, um, it was a contrast of grapes yeah. in new American oak and, and what they came out as. Yeah, Cynthiana seems to like uh, American oak. It does. <laughs> it would make sense, right? It's a Native, Native American grape, so it would make sense that that would work well together. So. And it's good that you let them go a little bit longer, too, to kind of yeah. tame down and, and mellow out a little bit. Sometimes they can have a little bit of that um, higher acidity and some complexities there. Mm -hmm. But when you age it, it just rounds it out. And I'm sure it, it took really well to the, the American oak to kind of just latch on and say, more, more. Yeah, it did. And, um, and I'm glad. I mean, that's one of the things that we, we try to age our reds for quite a while. We, we don't rush anything into the bottle. That's why I tell you it's very good that Kurt is as patient as he is. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't. He won't rush. He won't even rush a white into, in, into a bottle. 
That's a good thing. So okay. If we're out of it, we're out of it. You know, here I, on my side, I'm going, <laughs> I when are we one. bottling? When are we bottling? Yeah. He's going, it's not ready. It's not ready. <laughs> Be patient. <laughs> Be patient. <laughs> so what else would you like folks to know about Firmcrest? What I'd like people to know is that um, we are very interested in the environment, environmental issues. We put our money where our mouth is, I guess you could say, with having a, a passive solar house as well as the, the wineries, passive solar, as well as having the, the solar power and now the solar power here. Um, we just believe that we need to be good stewards of our environments. We don't try to overspray our grapes, just give them what they need when they need it. We try to be minimalist when it comes to additives to our wines. That's one of the reasons why Kurt takes a long period of time to get them ready to go in the bottle, because he wants to make sure that they have gone through as much natural settling, fining as possible before we do anything else to them. And we work with um, you know, actual fruit. I mean, when, when we make a wine that has peaches in it or has blackberries, blueberries, we're using fresh products. We're not using concentrate or adding any of the other things that some other wineries will, will add. Not that they're, it's a bad thing, but we're actually using fruit. Yeah, that's your choice. It, that is our choice, too. Yeah. yeah. Well, tell folks how they can find you physically and virtually and if there's anything else you want to cover. Yeah. Well, we have a website. It's www.ferncrestwinery.com, and it's very, we also, um, we do ship. I would like people to know that, so any state that will accept shipments, we do use a service by the name of Nino Shipper, but from our website, the page that has the current list of products, it will, uh, has a button that you can go directly to Vino Shipper and, and buy the wine. Uh, we also have a Facebook page and an Instagram account, so you can look for us, Burncrest Winery, on both of those, and like us and, and see what's going on. We're having um, music right now on Sundays afternoons. We were having it outside, but with the heat and humidity coming in for next week, we're <laughs> going to have it inside this right now. Uh, it'll continue until October 1st, but then we're going to start up again uh, the last weekend in October and go through at least November, possibly the first weekend in December with, again, the Sunday afternoons. And it'll be outside when it's nice, and it'll be inside when it's not, because we've got plenty of room in here right. to have folks as well as music. And folks can find you physically in downtown physically Andrews. In downtown Andrews, we're at the corner of uh, Cherry and Main, and that's 1060 Main Street. If you come into Andrews, it's not really hard to find Main Street. <laughs> no. <laughs> It's, it's kind of the main drag, if you will. So uh, yeah, yeah, it's the main, it's the main drag. Yeah, it's very easy. And then look for the grapevine, and then that's, that's when right. you, you'll know those. And certainly, if you follow uh, the Facebook page and Instagram, Jan always is posting pictures about how that grapevine is doing and the grapes throughout the season. So it's always fun to see that. So, excellent, yeah, Jan. We definitely appreciate it. Thank you very much for having us. Well, thank you, out. thank you for coming. I really appreciate you taking your time to let me do this. That's it for this episode of Cork Talk. 
Thanks again to Jan. We appreciate her taking the time to talk with us, and we encourage everyone to plan a visit to downtown Andrews, North Carolina to visit them. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and a review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and threads at NC Wine Guys. Until next time, and remember, a cork only talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers! This episode was made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council.